And we are live with our 152nd uh, episode of Absolute Absec. I'm Ken Johnson at CK Tricky on Twitter, joined by my co-host Seth Law at Seth Law on Twitter. Seth, say hi. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode. Uh, we're filming or we're, we're going live during the afternoon this time around uh, just because life happened this morning, even though, yeah, life happens. That's all. Uh, but we're happy to be here. We're happy to discuss. we got a few items that we just wanted to talk through today. Um, don't have a massive agenda. I did want to mention a couple of things, though. Uh, in the end of next week is B-Side Salt Lake City. If you're in the Salt Lake City metro area, uh, please come by. We're going to be there. We'll be attending and supporting the, B- the local B-Sides community. Uh, but would love to you know, match up or see people uh, as we as we get into it um outside of that uh there's trying to remember what other conferences we have coming up ken but uh, there's a couple that we're going to submit to to actually teach in person coming up in you know late yeah late winter early spring so watch for that once we know more and have more details on it we will let you know Um, yeah yeah i've been kind of hesitant to uh, really pursue going to any conferences and all of that only because of the fact that um, things tend to you. So like you want to make travel plans, you know, you want to get things kind of squared away in advance. And, and I don't feel like I can make plans and be guaranteed that the in-person part will still happen, especially this time of year, you know, cold and flu season, uh, cold, basically, basically like the right conditions for you know numbers to go up and if numbers go back up then they're gonna cancel things and so yeah it's kind of just i don't know like when i say hesitant it's just because like of the hassle of having to book things and then cancel things and so it's just i don't know for me i don't know about you but unless it's local and easy to get to um i'm just kind of and i you know yeah it's just kind of playing it by ear um yeah did last con Last con already happened, right? Didn't it? It did. It did. Okay. Yep. Um, yeah. I suppose the other thing too is the the you know the training aspect of it too. Like, is it a good place for us to train at? It's always a question as well. It's usually, yep. you know, yeah, one it, thing we like to do. <laughs> yep. And <laughs> it will just depend on, like, like Ken said, kind of what the numbers look like and whether or not it makes sense. But uh, yeah, hopefully we'll hmm. get there. At some point, we'll, we'll, we'll see people again. <laughs> yeah, at some point soon, that's, hopefully. That's, at some point soon. <laughs> but mm-hmm. otherwise, uh, let's see. There was a couple of things that I did want to talk through. Um, you know, from a news perspective, I think it was just yesterday that uh, GoDaddy announced their, you know, their breach, right? Um See, I've got a link to it here. Something like 1.2 million customers. Um, of course, it was uh, all of the you know the managed WordPress instances, right? Uh, that I know that says one 12 million. The link itself, but it's actually 1.2. Um, I wondered what your thoughts were on this, right? Like I, we we've kind of get gotten away from reporting breaches just because it's. I, I don't know. I go back to what Jerry said 
like I think on the, as a first guest on our episode on episode AppSec with, uh, you know, if a breach happens and no one reports it, no one cares, did it really happen? Right. Like, um, and so I, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that just from a general perspective, right? Like, are you as concerned about breaches nowadays outside of it happening to, to GitHub or to people that you're directly affected by, uh, you know, what are your general thoughts when, when something like this pops up? Are you surprised anymore? Are you concerned? Yeah. Let me know. Surprised. Surprised. No. Are you asking me or are you asking? the? Yeah. yeah, No, I'm asking you. Right. Okay. Sorry. I was like, wait, maybe you mean more generically than just the people watching. Yeah. For me, I'm not super surprised. Obviously Uh, I am. However, you know, some of the things that concern me are anytime there's uh, a breach of like off, like passwords and things like that. Um, that's always kind of concerning, right? Especially if it's like, I mean, obviously like tied to an account takeover situation with where I work. So, I mean, I, or could be, so that's always a concern. Also like uh, when SolarWinds came out um, and, you know, I look at that as a breach as well. Um, maybe it's yeah. not a like breach in the sense of, grabbing data and running, but rather, you know, affecting the, the supply chain um, of that software, uh, the entire supply chain of that software, then yes, very much concerned because a lot of the things that uh, were affected by solar winds um, are technologies that are pretty common for, you know, dev opsy shops to use. And um, that, 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 yeah, that's, it causes quite a headache. Uh, that, that particular one caused quite a headache. Now, if it's just breaches like, someone has IDOR again. I like it because it's a good example. I don't like that they got breached. I'm not saying or advocating for that, but I, I like to, I like those for the the fact they give us examples of like, yeah, see, this is actually a problem. You know, this is when we do our course, whether, or if we're just like internally at my company, if I'm, you know, talking to developers or something like that, it's always nice to have examples to point to though. I don't wish for it. So is there such a thing as breach fatigue? I'm sure, you know, probably people don't get up in arms as much. And I, and I, and you know, the real question, Seth, is not what we as technologists think, but I think, or not a real question, but a different question that I'm interested in personally is what are the, what do the average people think of this, right? Like the average person that's not a technologist, what do they think or doesn't work yeah. in security? And that, that that's mean, a good have, question. Have you talked to anyone? From it's uh, like just well, a, a normie, as we'll call a him. Normie, <laughs> a normie. Is that what we're calling him? That's what I'll uh, call him. <laughs> not, I. I mean, not really. Well, no, no, that's that's not true, right? I haven't asked specifically about this one, but when things are in the news, especially like from a breach perspective, um, you know, two three years ago, I would get people asking me about them whether that's, you know, my in-laws or just other non-technical, you know, members of my family would ask. I don't think anything recently, like even though SolarWinds was huge and it really does have a, a massive effect on the security of all these companies, I, like no one asks anymore, right? I, like I feel like we have reached breach fatigue with normal people. Like I see this from GoDaddy and I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Like they had this managed, you know, uh, WordPress stuff that was out there and 
again, 1.2 million, but 1.2 million feels like peanuts at this point with the amount of data that's out there. Right. And I'm like, okay, so it's great that GoDaddy reported it, that they saw it for a couple of months. And to be fair, they, you know, they caught it after, you know, eight weeks or whatever, like however long that exposure was, but, and there's still some tuning to be done there. But I mean, had this happened three, four years ago, it would be all over the news. You know, I'm pretty sure like it may not have hit like local news, but at the very least it would hit some of the national news channels. Nowadays, it's just like, oh, tech site will report on it. We'll see it in, you know, our news feeds, like our information security news feeds. But I don't really see much other activity around it. And I'm not getting people asking me about it, right? Like just in my circles that are outside of us, right? Um, so, so I, 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 I'm afraid that we have jumped on it too much in those initial phases that people just don't care anymore. And they're not really resetting those passwords unless, uh, unless a, a website or an application is forcing them to do it. Yeah. You, you, it's, it's also probably like, well, maybe GoDaddy, maybe, maybe people have like stuff on GoDaddy, but I, I think like what would be, if it was your Hulu, you know, payment details or your Netflix payment details, or what do people use like Uber or Instacart or anything like that? Something that people, especially in today's world where like people are having to deal or use more often like services built for remote life. Right. Um, something like that was breached. I feel like maybe people would care more, but you know, it's like we, we sit there and we're like, Oh, solar winds. Do people not understand how big of a deal that is? And they're like, what's, what's a solar winds? Why would I? <laughs> yeah. What is I, solar wind? Yeah. Is that a hammer? <laughs> like, what is that? You know? Oh, is it like know. a solar flare? Like it causes yeah, security like, issues or I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> solar panel company. Yeah. I mean, you know, the reality is, much less savvy than you would think with, uh, yeah. I mean, honestly though, even as a technologist is like, yeah, I know solar winds exist, but when's the last time I've worked with, or at least consciously worked with solar winds. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, and, um, and that's what we run into, right? Like, yeah, it's definitely interesting to us and there's, there are issues associated with it. And, and that, and that's kind of what I, why I brought this up is, I see it. I see this as a failure of GoDaddy for sure. They're, they're going to fix it. Or, you know, but every company gets hit by this, right? 1.2 million records is no longer a large breach. Um, and these passwords, and it looks like some random stuff was it, you know, the way that they were generating WordPress admin credentials. So it wasn't even really shared passwords or like user chosen passwords, right? It was uh, these these other, I mean, it was a randomly generated password by GoDaddy. So how valuable actually is that? Uh, I don't know. I'd be more concerned with some of the SSH credentials and other things that are going on there uh, that came through, came about that. Yeah. I I don't know, man. Should we care anymore? Like, and maybe it's, you know, afternoon and I'm a nihilist on a, you know, Tuesday afternoon today, but it just, yeah. What what I did want to post was, you know, I, I suggested that we, you know, just send this back across to them. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah. No, I'm actually, um, 
Yeah, I, to your point, actually, you made a. I guess it. Yeah, when it would be in. Okay, so the like where, when I think it would be. Because I'm I'm looking at like the what was what was actually breached, right? So active and inactive managed WordPress customers had their email addresses and customer number exposed. Don't think many people would care about that. The original WordPress admin password that was set at the time of provisioning was exposed, and if those were still in use, that would yeah. be an issue. So but that's, that's like the, I mean, that's right. the random, right? Like that's random WordPress admin. It's not a yeah. Mm. Anyway, yeah, yeah. So unless any of this really gives you. Yeah, none of this really gives them any uh, for active customers. SFTP and database username and passwords are exposed. Well, that's that's pretty awful. So if that if there is a database and it's it's you know they can reach it and they have the credentials to it and that database is used by like a lot of people, um, some popular site, then they then someone would care. But for these things, like for a subset of active customers, the SSL private key was exposed. What person out there, like? even in security, but like outside of security, who's, who's going to be sitting there like freaking out about really any of this or even, you know, caring at all. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think we're, I think we would be, uh, uh, little overstating the, uh, the impact to the average user if we said they, they were, uh, you know, freaked out or cared about that too, too much. So. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I, I mean, which is probably rightfully so, uh, you know, in this case, but you know, it was just kind of that blip that popped up that, you know, it came from sec.gov or whatever that I saw it reported and I didn't really mm. hear anything about it. And so yeah, it does just feel like it's, breach fatigue is a real thing. <laughs> yeah. Actually to your point, I don't, it's funny you say that because I will purposefully go seek out news. One of the reasons being this, um, you know, this podcast and so I'll, I'll, I'll seek out news and I'll find tons of articles about breaches or yeah, just breaches and things that happen that I'm like, wait, you don't hear about any of this. You will never hear about any of this uh, unless you go see, you seek it out. So it could be that I'm not paying attention to the right feeds on Twitter or something like that, which is very likely because I'm not on there ever. But, uh, you know, I'm guessing though, it's more of just like not promoted heavily in the the mainstream media as the, as the term is coined now. Yeah. I, well, I don't know. Right. Like anyway. Um, so that was the GoDaddy hack, whatever <coughs> breach, whatever Excuse you want to call it. Um, but, uh, the other article that I brought that I wanted to talk about before we get into, you know, the fun, uh, Thanksgiving Day plans and Black Friday sales and all of that. There's actually a recent blog post from Trail of Bits. Um, and the, the reason I bring this one up is because whenever we have Stefan on, we talk about symbolic execution and we talk about all of these uh, like testing strategies and fuzzing. But at times we don't necessarily give a very good background of what it is that we're talking about. Right? Hmm. Um, and, the, and this blog post from Trail of Bits actually is a good walkthrough of, this is a, a short description and exercise in what symbolic execution is and how to use these different tools that have been mentioned in the past, like Binary Ninja, Manticore. So MUI is Manticore user interface, I believe. But 
it's how to actually use those and get started with them and why it's important, right? Um, so it, it looks like this was a uh, an intern or something at Trail of Bits that was doing some work with MUI and helping you know build on top of that. And but he gives a really good explanation of what symbolic execution is and why you would care about it as a security technologist, as someone that is doing some something in application security. Um, and it, it, I just wanted something like, yeah, I wanted to give another resource to those that hadn't had that exposure in the past or did not have that exposure in the past. Yeah, that's a great article. It. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, yeah, I actually read it. Um, well, at least the uh, the highlights. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Yeah. So they do give a good breakdown of like basically how, you know, states get created. So and you assign, you know, sort of like a symbol to that state. Um, and anyways, they're just talking about how state explosion occurs and how this tool is uh you know, helping to address that by implementing a human back into the process. You can visually see the states expand. So to make that concrete, the example they give is an if else statement with a less than five, greater than five. And there's two separate states, right? But you can see pretty quickly if you have a lot of if else or conditional related type statements, uh, you know, there's tons of operators to have conditional outcomes as well, rather than just if else case, when switch, stuff like that. Uh, so you, you, and then, uh, as loops occur and, uh, processes branch off or exec separately, now you have like this state explosion that they're talking about. And so they want to give you a tool to actually like, as these states get built out, you can see where these, where things kind of get out of control is what I'm taking from the article, if I'm reading this right. But I liked, like you said, the description of what a, um, yeah, what, what that, what am I trying to say what a symbolic execution is and then what states are generated during that? Yep. Yeah. It's a, like we, you know, sometimes we gloss over those terms and I know that, we, you know, depending on the audience at the, you know, at that given time, they may or may not understand what it actually is. Um, to Cole's point too, he's asking if uh, I think it's how most of this commercial SAS tools work. It's similar that a uh, commercial SAS tool builds out a, a state engine, right? And then we'll do a source to sync trace, right? Um, the, the symbolic execution is almost taking the binary state though, instead of the static state to do that uh, and determining where those branches exist. And then, you know, building out this symbolic execution based on what those branches are and then testing through it. So it's, it is a very similar approach, Cole, uh, but they do have kind of different tools for it based on whether or not it is dynamic or static or you know, what have you. So yeah, it's a good there. one to go read it on and spend a little bit of time on. Um, it's, you know, some of those terms that we use, uh, like when we're starting to do static analysis, like our our course, uh, it's a lot of what we're holding in our head, right? We're doing that almost naturally when you review code, right? You know, you, you look at that simple explanation of, you know, um, X is either greater than or equal to four or less than four. We've, we automatically split that out into this pathway in our head, right? We can go down one branch or we can go down another, and those are the two symbolic states or the, the symbolic executors that have to run in that case. 
Yeah. Yeah. And actually, you know, I've had this bite me in the past before where the conditional was written in such a way that it was so long and so hard to follow and on one line that I actually like missed a uh, problematic or statement at the end. And uh, I don't know, is it like a side note to all of this? I, I do recommend, you know, most, most engineers or software engineers will, um, you know, you'll run linting tools and those linting tools might have rules like, you know, only go 80 spaces across with your uh, comments or something like that. I think a rule like that should definitely exist for conditionals. If you're a security person and you're reviewing code, if you see like crazy long conditionals, it's best to break those out. And why I mean, why I say that is like, seriously, visually, it's very hard to, um, if you're doing this manually, it's very hard to read something that's like very, 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 very long, which is, doesn't happen all the time, but it does sometimes and it becomes very confusing to follow. So you could also just like break it down by like, you know, spacing it all out. And that's also an option, but yeah, probably, probably better to have them rewrite the code. That's going to be, that's going to require me to actually like get in there and rewrite the code though, to break it up, you know? Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah, (laughs) but that's not too bad. Yeah, yeah, but it's it is not too work. hard. I'm just, I'm just it's being lazy. Work. Come on, Ken, it's fine. <laughs> no, but don't um, worry about it. That's it. That, that's like, good. I, I'll put some crazy conditionals into VTM for you to explore next time around. You should, you should, <laughs> and I'll just, yeah, some. No, seriously, the one I'm talking about was bizarrely like it was not. It wasn't good because yeah, you can't tell what's going on. So, but um, I was going to mention too, like with commercial tools. Um, they also all work differently. So it's, it, it's one theory that they operate off of, but like, I mean, some of, some are nothing more than glorified regex. Some are, you know, actually parsing out using the abstract abs, abstract syntax tree, uh, having those node modules that get built or the node, I'm sorry, not node JS modules, node, they're literally nodes <clears throat> with, you know, little bits of information they get built out. Um, and then usually that's when companies say that that's like, they use that, they, they build their proprietary secret sauce on top of like having parsed that out. And then that's where their like logic goes from there. So you don't always know like how they're doing it under the hood because it's not really something widely discussed if, you know, so it just depends on the company. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. It's a, I don't know. I, I mean, it's an interesting space, right? Like, I, I I know that you know we can riff off of it for hours if we wanted to to actually you know see how it's analyzed and see how each of the different um, products goes into it, whether that is in the static space or in the um, dynamic oh, oh. or in the symbolic execution space as well. And it looks like we lost Ken, so. I'm sure he'll be back shortly. That's been about how this day is going. So here, let me, I'm going to hide this really quick (laughs) before we dive into another topic. So I guess we'll bring this up really quick. Um, I should be joining. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you again. No video. (laughs) I'll work on the video. I apologize. Uh, Yeah, no, I uh, went to go switch uh, to standing up uh, because my leg was, going numb from sitting all day so i yeah that's when uh i just realized i have this camera set up differently than usual so sorry about that my bad i immediately rectified the problem before it was a a huge deal so 
That's fine. Uh, yeah. Cool. Yeah, but, um, good. So that, that uh, the next link that I was going to post in here was actually uh, Black Friday deals for information security people. Mm. Since we all know that we don't do anything on Friday, but shop, right? Apparently. (laughs) Shop and Um, deal with breaches. Shop and deal with breaches. Um, But this did have a couple of things in it that I wanted to call out. And actually they're pulling it from a, uh, let me drop this other link in here from an actual like GitHub repository that's tracking these. Um, Yes. It's that one. I think that's being updated more than the article is in and of itself. Um, but what you'll notice. Oh, I, you know, that, hey, by the way, I just found out that if I, if I, it's a law. I did not know this. this is a law. If I promote a GitHub service, I have to say that I work for GitHub. So in case <laughs> this counts as that, I work for GitHub. Okay, sorry. Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> it's not a GitHub law. Apparently, it's a law law. Like, it's yeah, a law it's, law. It's, it's a law law. Disclaimer: you know Seth law law. Ken works for GitHub. Okay, so um, the the one thing I did want to call out was this proxy man um, web debugging proxy for Mac OS. And I don't know if you've played with this before, Ken. Um, if that's one that you've seen, this has been incredibly useful to me and my team over the last six months in um, performing mobile assessments, right? Um, and I, I specifically because uh, the new M1 MacBook, right, or the new M1 devices allow you to run mobile apps on your laptop or on your M1 Mac, as opposed to just under iOS. And um, yeah, it's, it's, been a, it's been super useful not to have to worry as much about jailbroken devices, even though we still have a lab of jailbroken devices that gives us a quick, easy way to analyze uh, network traffic from any sort of a iOS application. Um, so if you haven't, if you're doing mobile assessments and you haven't had a chance to uh, you know, run any of that on your M1 device, I would encourage you to download and install Proxy Man. There's a free version as well, but the, you know, the paid version gives you, some again, some additional features. It's not super expensive, all things considered, but it does allow you to target specific applications on your device and proxy that traffic. Uh, so I would encourage you to take a look at it. Right? It's, um, it's been very useful to us anyway. So that's proxyman.io, and it's 30% off right now if you want to buy the professional version or the paid version. Um, that was the, I mean, that was yeah, the biggest thing that I saw on that list. Yeah. That's, I haven't seen this before. Huh. It's pretty cool, man. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it's a, it's a good little tool, right? Uh, you know, similar to, you know, Burp Suite as it becomes more and more a part of our, like, um, yeah, yeah, our, our assessment process this this helped out on the mobile side because we could target specific running processes and then proxy that directly to burp um, cool we've used it in conjunction but it does allow some replay and some other things there's some limited functionality that you're able to reuse with proxy man um, i still prefer burp for a full like test of the back-end api but it does 
give me access to that HTTP request and I can drop it straight into repeater or somewhere else uh, to complete my testing as opposed to, you know, some of the other techniques that we've used in the past. It just made it really easy. Have you, I had a question. Um, do you, two part question. Do you have the new M1 Mac chip, uh, uh, compute, you know, I don't know, laptop. Also, have you uh, used that um, with the uh, simulator? I understand that it's supposed to be like far more phenomenal for doing mobile tests. If, if, if everybody watching can't tell, I haven't done mobile testing in years. So I'm like way out of date on this stuff. But yeah, I was curious, like, because I heard it's supposed to be, and I mean, even my work, my work uh, ones, uh, uh, my work laptops and M1 and just using that for normal stuff seems a lot snappier. So I'm curious. Oh, yeah. I mean, definitely on the, the iOS side of things, development-wise, the simulator, because it's not, at that point, they don't have to simulate as much, right? They're not having to uh, represent it. It's actually just ARM calls and on the ARM processor itself. Um, mm -hmm. And that's, yeah, like it, it's actually made life easier for us on the iOS testing side of things as well. Um, we, like, I, we got we ended up getting a couple of the MacBook Pros, like the M1s, right after they came out. Um, I, I mean, that's the device I'm using right now, Ken. It's oh. An M1 a MacBook Pro, and it's done just as well, if not better, than the, the Intel chip that I was using in the past. So. Yeah, that was my, my question, is if you did see a significant improvement, because like that that's what I had heard, is that it was just supposed to be like phenomenal in, in, in con, uh, comparison to the Intel chip ones yeah. for mobile yeah. testing specifically so <clears throat> excuse me yeah the i i mean the my main device is still an intel based system um on the mac side of things uh, that has large amounts of memory for running vms that is the one thing that i i'm a little leery of is the fact that then i have to move off of um yeah, like Windows systems and Linux systems and how well those are supported by VMware or whatever, you know, other software that's out there and able to run applications and stuff on it. Uh, nowadays, it's not a big as big a deal because, you know, Kubernetes, Docker and virtual machines yeah. up in the cloud, you can get, you know, you can do quite a bit. Uh, but I do like having that flexibility locally. So it's a trade off. <laughs> Um, but so far, you know, on this device itself and for the testing purposes that we've had, the, yeah, the M1 has done great, right? It's made our lives a lot easier. Nice. Cool. Yeah. I've been enjoying it just for regular stuff. It's been super snappy, but, uh, yeah, I'm just curious about, you know, how that goes. So that's cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. Are you doing any interesting tests? Like, uh. Have you done it? Have you had anything interesting pop up? Um, I mean, we reviewed that cool I like last time. So, uh, uh, yeah. I'm trying to think the last few days, you know, I, I, like one of the things that I've noticed recently, and I've done a couple of these over the, the past six months, um, is some of the older systems that are being used by large corporations. Uh, they have us test in, you know, QA or, you know, test environments on like on a huge corporate network. And they're using some old or they're using some framework to develop applications. Um, I've actually found default credentials 
on like uh, I, I'm not sure how deep I want to go, but like um, you know, what go as deep as you need to. <laughs> I know, no, I know. <laughs> entertain um, us at your own Entertain expense. you. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's just say it's really easy to find default creds for most of those old. Um, well, not even old, right? Like uh, for frameworks and application development tools like DevSecOps tools that have been around oh. for 10 years, right? Famously um, terrible, yeah. And uh, and half the time, like I get responses back from the DevSecOps teams at these places. They're like, oh, that's QA, right? And yeah, yeah, it's not like that in production. I'm like, okay, that may be the case. The problem that I have is that you're cloning QA or your test system from production, including the data that's in production. And then you're not realizing that your cloned data on this new environment that you just stood up has all those same default usernames and passwords that uh, that any instance would that people can go and look up in the documentation, Right. It's a, right. it, it's a, it's very much a, you know, and we were talking about OWASP, like the new OWASP list yesterday, right, um, at right. our local OWASP chapter. But the the insecure design, kind of insecure security misconfigurations that go into putting these tools in place are not always. I, I mean, they, they these companies and these. You know, these organizations just don't take that into consideration when it comes to QA and the other environments that they're using outside of production, which exposes data, exposes things to other employees. And I would even go so far as uh, the like auditing trails that exist, logging in those systems, because, you know, most companies don't do any sort of customer obfuscation when they pull data into QA instance they just don't um i mean I, like I, I was going to be very specific and ask you if you had seen ask anything me. like that no, inter- I, internally. I, so I know what you guys I have done stuff yeah is that um well so for for github uh yeah we're not putting any real prod data in anything period uh should never get any like yeah, there's too much segmentation and all that stuff. But for uh, let's talk about Living Social. When I worked at Living Social, um, and if anybody if anybody remembers back that far, they were a Groupon competitor, and hopefully people <laughs> remember Groupon. Is Groupon still around? I can't. Remember. I don't actually know. Groupon. I know Living Social's not. I think they got acquired by Groupon for like nothing. But anyways. You asked about the data. The data we would hold is only, uh, it was like, I think it was either the first, say, 100 rows of each table, which then meant it was just employee data, or it was uh, filtered out just to be employee data, which is like not great. But I mean, when I say employee data too, I'm talking about like, remember this was a VC-backed startup. So like, you know, you had your typical engineers that came that kind of like all work together, like kind of like what you do in AppSec, you know, you, and so you got your core folks and it was really the core folks' information that they were, wasn't, it was real and it wasn't, if that makes any sense. So it, 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 but it was at no point supposed, supposed to be customer data, right? Like it was, so I don't remember if it was a truncation 
that occurred. And that's why you just had like the original first core group of people that built the company in the de- development and staging environments or yeah, I can't remember, but yeah, I've seen it before for sure. Now, oh, sorry, Mike. Uh, now, are you saying that the systems so I, since it, staging is connected to a database or could potentially be exploited and then potentially have connections to a database that would hold the real prod data? Sounds like. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's that's exactly what I've run into recently is, you know, there is prod data in a QA instance that we're testing against and then all the passwords aren't reset behind the scenes. Um, and, and we're talking things like, oh, look, there's the, here's the administrative portal for uh, deploying new applications to this infrastructure. And, you know, the default password is admin, admin, right? And uh, like, I'm just like, it's not even, I have to go on the web, web and look for what those default credentials are. It is man, you guys just didn't do security 101 with any of this. Um, and it, it's definitely just a process. It's just part of this insecure design, like uh, the SDLC process that you've got to be vigilant about security. I mean, leaving living social, at least there was some sort of truncation that you were right. running into. Well, but that, that's well the, yeah. there were other issues, but sure, sorry. <laughs> continue. <laughs> I wouldn't go patting them on the back quite yet, but anyways, continue. <laughs> I mean, at least there was something because a lot of these large corporations, you know, there's not anything and it's a huge effort to actually go through and obfuscate data. Um, I know there's companies out there that'll do that for you. So, uh, that'll, you know, take your data and obfuscate it and change names and change, you know, everything in the, in a data set, if you're concerned about it. Uh, but most companies, as they grow up, that's not necessarily a, a, a concern until it has to be right. Um, but most and, of it, like you, you would be surprised. It's most of these companies are large, large organizations that you would think had to figure it out for compliance reasons. And apparently it's just never come up. Right. It's out of scope, there, I guess. Right. I don't know. I think it comes down to risk tolerance because it's always interesting to things. And this is a dichotomy. So we talk about in when we train people, but just in regular, you know, AppSec life, uh, I can honestly say that I can ask an engineer, like what parts of this new service or feature you're developing. And they're going to give me a per- usually very accurate uh, descriptions of where the real risk is. Like I'll, I'll do my own assessment of that, of course, but typically they're right. They're right on the money on where the real risk re- was. There is a dichotomy though, where there are situations certainly where it comes to like architecture that's outside of maybe what you know the the core piece of that project that an engineer is looking at that they know very well but just like zooming out from that like the core architecture where then you get into a a sort of like threat model risk situation and it gets a little it can get a little wonky where people like what they're worried about and what they think is a risk versus like the practical actual risks that we would see just from like, you know, okay, well, if somebody escalated here, where could they get next from there? Where could they go next? You know what I mean? Like the layered approach and where to, but it's interesting because a lot of times, yeah, you'll get some pretty far out there ideas of like where risk would be. 
doesn't touch the practical stuff whatsoever. Um, so it's weird. It's kind of a weird thing. And I think that has to do with like, like I said, an engineer can be very amazing at the one thing that they're focused on, but then it's, it's, it, if it's part of a larger, like in this, this instance infrastructure, well, maybe the software engineers aren't even touching that infrastructure. Maybe it's just like, well, oh, we yeah. make sure all this stuff connects to the things. And then SRE is supposed to do what they do. And they're more maybe worried about redundancy or uptime or optimizations or whatever. So it's like it be, everybody becomes a little bit disconnected from the like the core of what this thing is and how to assess risk properly in it. And that's where well, security I, is interesting. And I talked to a manager, sorry, but this was interesting. Yeah. I actually was like, uh, ooh, what can I say about this? I was talking to somebody who uh, today, actually, who was, um, we were talking about management things, um, had a really unique perspective uh, looking at what we do in that we don't look at those individual pieces of what people build. We look at the end to end and that's hard. That's a hard thing to do because you have to grasp the complete picture and all of the things that, you know, make up that picture to then dig in and look at like weaknesses and vulnerabilities. So anyways, uh, yeah. Cool. Yeah. It, I, well, and because that's the truth, right? We have to understand the complete picture of something before we can even understand like what's, what could be going wrong with it. Whereas well, and if it, you look at yeah. SRE or you look at the DevOps folks or you look at the engineers, they're looking at their scope of that project, not the entirety of the project. Not, not that's a broad stroke statement. I get it, but I'm just like, yeah, in general. Yeah. And okay. So, and, and this is what I wanted to go back to, right? Is like, I find myself, like we have this, our like Circle K framework, right? For code reviews. But it's very much also like a lot of those actions are applicable for like dynamic reviews or any sort of manual penetration test, manual assessment of a of an application, right? Um, I, like I, I, so these vulnerabilities I found with these endpoints, right? There's an admin portal that's accessible the only way that I actually found those was uh, looking at the profile of the application, seeing that it was making calls and using specific like cookie patterns, Googling what those cookie patterns corresponded to, realized that they were using a specific framework and then enumerating out what the default install and default apps and default functionality of that framework actually was. Um, and you'd be surprised how much you can uncover about any running application using that those same sort of just logical steps about, huh, that's weird. I've seen this before in XYZ situation or, wow, this is using, you know, JSF, you know, and, you know, files, right? Java server frame or Java, Java server faces. And that wasn't yeah. one that, that it was, but, you know, like, Things like that that you haven't seen before, you scratch that itch until you're able to understand what's going on with an application. And if you like, it, it's worth the time up front to put in that that effort. That's what I, I want you to understand. Even on like the bug bounty side of things, if you understand the application, that stuff pops up a lot more easily than it does if I'm just throwing like every endpoint at a, like every fuzz list at a specific endpoint, right? It, it just, 
that takes a long time. And my, you know, the, the amount of success I have to actual vulnerabilities and actual flaws is pretty minuscule. Like it's a, you know, a small percentage of, oh, I took the, you know, two hours instead of scanning, I went and read the documentation and now I'm able to find X, Y, and Z and, you know, secure an application as opposed to, wow, I just spent two hours at scanning that application and I found, you know, the stuff that I found in the first 10 minutes of looking at it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we have a hard, hard, uh, 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 it's a hard job to do for that, for that reason. You do have to look at the totality. Actually, something you, you uh, said made me think of when you mentioned fuzzing, there was a question in our last video, which I thought maybe we could address. It was, um, could you provide more detail on what type of, okay. So this is, sorry, this is going back to, uh, the conversation and actually what DevSecCon, which we'll put a link into, uh, both Seth and I did a lightning talk, Seth did a lightning talk on secure code reviews. I did a lightning talk on, this was this week by the, or was that last week? It was last week. Yeah. Okay. It was last week. Sorry. At the tail end, I think of last week. Um, so you did a talk on secure code reviews. I did a talk that was an extent, extended version of where my head was at with, uh, in terms of testing, uh, optimizing testing when you're dealing with like service oriented architectures, um, to include microservices, which that's what this question's about, about the things that I had talked about or you and I, you and I had both talked about. Um, but I figured I could answer this one cause I know this, this is specific to the thing I specifically was talking about, which is, could you provide more detail on what type of fuzzing, uh, you believe, uh, will help suss out vulnerabilities in the microservices pattern. Is it fuzzing for the desynchronization of HTTP request formats? Example, fuzzing the, the CL content length and TE transfer encoding headers to yep. see how those might allow for request smuggling. Or are you fuzzing the body of the request? No, I think it's everything in the, the, the request from the path to the body to the headers that need to be fuzzed. Um, period. And that's, and that's why, right? Because the, th- that's the issue is that it's hard to pinpoint exactly what's going to go wrong, especially from a, a source code perspective in terms of specifically as it, as it pertains to, you know, weird like proxy behavior or front end re- behavior. So weird behavior between the, the front end and the back end, and then certain components of that request being handled differently on the front end than the back end. And it's, that's the issue is you don't always know what part is, uh, you know, what, what part's going to fail. Right. So, but for specifically, if you're talking about desynchronization or if you're talking about request smuggling bits, yeah, that's the, uh, in James Kettle's article, he talks about fuzzing those specific headers and how to do it also without being destructive, which is pretty cool to cause a timeout. Um, and then based off the being able to adjust the timeout, you, it's kind of like testing for blind SQL injection. You cause a timeout and then, you know, based on, on the response time, you, you know, whether or not what you're doing is impacting the system that you can't really see, uh, an output from. So, um, yes, I think that's part of it. I think it's also stuff like, like I said, like SSRF is a big one. And then they're just straight up oddities that just, and it's not always like, it's not like just a standard technology that's used on the front end, like a load balancer or proxy or something like that. Nginx, whatever. It's not like that. It's not that I think that there are 
mass issues in those technologies. I actually think the bigger problem is when people create, say, their own custom front end that has like authentication or author and authorization or one of the two or whatever, like maybe it's a multi-layered set of systems. Um, but then those systems are like the wall that people interact with and behind them are all the other systems that are taking basically whatever the user did and then possibly that input being you know, placed into those backend systems and there being like different components of the requests that are being parsed out differently on the front end and the back end. Um, you know, and there's more details coming out more recently about the NPM thing. And, you know, that'll probably clear up some of what I'm talking about because it feels a little abstract right now. Um, but this is actually like a, a more prevalent thing that I'm seeing. So, I'm trying to make sure. Does that does that sound like I answered that, Seth? Okay, or like, are there still some things you would add to that? I mean, I'm sure there's things you would you're thinking of as I'm talking. Yeah, I, I mean, from a fuzzing perspective, it's it's hard to say. You know, only one of those two things is you know one is more important than the other. Um, mm. But exactly to your point, because we see flaws in both places, right? Um, there's okay, how is this microservice that I'm directly interacting with actually handing the body that's being sent to it, right? Um, on that specific endpoint. But then there's also, oh, is there any sort of infrastructure in between my browser and that microservice that I'm interacting with? And that's where those headers come into play, the, you know, the TE and the CL stuff, the content length, transfer encoding, um, request smuggling that can happen along those lines. Um, and then there's like, there's components of, Hey, that API is then interacting with yet again, another API behind the scenes that doesn't have authorization or authentication on it because it's assumed that everything is trusted and we've got a proxy in between there. So I like in my testing, just in the last, you know, three to four months, I've seen flaws in each of those layers. And so we're doing a disservice as testers. If we just decide, Hey, I'm just going to go check for, you know, the CLTE vulnerabilities, the request smuggling, as opposed to how the application is handling data, how it, where it's sending something else off to from an SSRF perspective, or even just, you know, I, you know, I found, you know, second order, third order insecure direct object reference in the past, right? Where the middle API is proxying data to an admin API behind the scenes, but they're allowing, they're just passing through an integer all the way. Um, and as long as I knew where that integer was, like the initial request was one integer, but then there was also in the post body that was going to a second location behind the scenes. And all of a sudden I'm seeing somebody else's data, right? And yeah, um, yeah those, those sorts of edge cases is exactly what we're trying to suss out and what we're trying to find based on, our experience and our knowledge of, you know, what that integration looks like. So that, that, this uh, is, that was a long answer it, to, yeah, I think I agree. Right. But, yeah. <laughs> but this is, I mean, this is actually like going back to our original com part of this conversation where we talked about like the totality of things, like that's our job to understand the totality of things. That's actually what you're talking about is exactly my point. It's that, you know, if, if you look at if you look at just one of those systems that were in that multi-system flow, you're going to miss that piece. Even if you do the most excellent code review, 
of excellent code reviews that you do, Seth, you're still going to miss it. It's still going to be a problematic thing. Oh, yeah. You're not going to see like the end to end. You, you don't have the total picture. And I think, I think that there are specific classes of bones that we are better off doing runtime testing from an end to end perspective than we'll ever be reviewing the source code. I think what's more likely is that you'll see runtime detection detecting some variance and that being your hint to go dig in deeper. And then that's when you look at the code to figure out what the actual root causes. But, but um, certainly detection is going to be better at the, uh, yeah, in the runtime and faster well, and, and, and more and, likely. And to, to that point, right? Like those these vulnerabilities that I'm talking about with like default framework, security misconfigurations, it's very hard to identify those in source code, right? Mm. It, you know, it's some dynamic environment that, uh, you know, an SRE or somebody else has put together that the developer loads their code onto. They probably have no idea that it exists. So there's no way that I would have found, you know, two or three of those in the code itself because it didn't have anything to do with the configuration file. It had to do with how the, how the administrators stood up those environments and that, you know, and the same thing goes with a lot of these other integration points. I don't think there's any easy way to do that. Yes, you know, we talk about infrastructure as code um, and some of that we could suss out, but it's very rare that especially these legacy frameworks, these uh, code bases that are these, uh, these developer tools that have been around for 20, 25 years, there's no infrastructure as code when it comes to that. It's basically, hey, go download this jar file and run it, right? It, and then you go in and reset the password manually. And if you forget to do that step, it doesn't get reset. That's that, that's what it boils down to, right? Oof. Yeah. Yeah. Yikes. Not great. Yeah. Not great. Not, it's not great. It's not all just com Tomcat. And like in the discussions that I have with people, it's very interesting, like our, uh, our local OWASP chapter, um, because we have some gray hairs that are in there that have seen like legacy COBOL mainframe system, old Java code, right? They have to deal with it on a daily basis. And then we get those uh, like idealist, like new students that are straight out, straight out of college, developers working at a, a startup. And they're like, well, it's fine. You just go upgrade the whole, uh, you know, the whole framework that is supporting your application. And I'm like, hold on a second there because yeah, I mean, it's just, it's experience is what it boils down to. Right. Like, but that, I don't know. The answer is, the, I, I, I will say yeah. I do agree with them, but oh, I do. I yeah. Think, I think yeah. that, uh, yeah. Then you have to look at like, well, what's it going to, what's it going to take to get there? How long out yeah. is that? What is it going to cost? We do right? in the interim. Like, yeah. Well, and, what can and I do I in the interim that's realistic? You know. Yeah, I found myself saying that's great, but when that cost of upgrading that library requires you to upgrade the mainframe and requires you to upgrade all these pieces in between, and end up costing the company fifty million dollars. Is that an acceptable amount for you to spend to eliminate, you know, a, a low to medium risk vulnerability? Right. Like it, it, it's just that prioritization needs to happen and. It's easy to discount old legacy systems when you haven't been dealing with them for years. That's that's all. Yeah, and on that note, if you like haven't read it yet, 
and I'm sh I'm one of millions of people I'm sure that have told you this, but uh, not not you, Seth. I'm just this to the viewers. If you have not read it yet, you should read the Phoenix Project. It's pretty interesting. I think it gives good perspective, and uh, without you having to actually go through that misery. Um, yeah. So if you're early on in your career and you haven't read the Phoenix Project. Uh, start there. It'll give you a good idea of the dynamics of a company and um, also maybe some perspective on how we're seen from the, you know, the lens of non-security people trying to accomplish business goals. So yep. yeah, I think it's helpful. It is. It is. Helpful. It's a good, it, it's good. Right. Um, anyway. So like, I know we've ranted for a while today. Um, yeah. I got to get to jujitsu here in a little bit. I practice. Oh yes. It's, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Ken's got r real things to do. As I got to go choke to... people for fun yeah. <laughs> or get choked. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> With the, how the day's going, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming the latter, not the four. Probably, probably yeah, the probably. latter. I'm probably yeah. getting choked out with my own gi tonight. So we'll see how it goes. Sweet. Um, well, everybody, we will be here next week. So please join us. Um, if you've got specific topics you would like us to address, uh, we will be, we should have a date next week for our code review project or our code review evening with Seth and Ken, whatever we want to call it. Um, and we'll set up a forum so you can suggest projects that you want us to take a look at. Uh, It'll probably look a lot like this at us at yes. night, but us at night, maybe a tasty adult beverage in hand. <laughs> Woohoo. That's going to be fun. I'm excited. New code bases are always fun. So good. All right. Well, yeah. Thanks everybody for joining today. Thanks for the interaction and we'll catch everybody next week. Bye. Thanks. <laughs>